welcome everyone to Biotech Hangout. Joining me today is co-host Josh Shimmer, and today we also have my Biotech Clubhouse, aka Hangout, co-founders Brad Longcar and Chris Garabedian joining as co-hosts on what Chris just pointed out is actually the two-year anniversary of uh, Biotech Clubhouse slash Hangout. So it's really exciting to have you guys on here, and uh, it's, a, it's a great week to be talking together. Let's kick off by reviewing the week at J.P. Morgan. First of all, I want to say, Brad and Josh, it was so great to spend some time together this week. And um, Chris, I think you may be in the Bruce Booth camp of no longer going to J.P. Morgan, or did you just have better things yeah, to do? Yeah, no. You know, it's funny. When Bruce put out that, you know, the, 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 the game's not worth the candle – uh, in 2019, I went to JPM in 2019. It was my 20th JP Morgan, okay, <laughs> that year. And, um, and but I went and I started to like think about what Bruce Booth's main comment was, which is as a venture investor, it's a very different conference than if you're a biotech public company CEO, Daphne like you, or a buy side you know, analyst or a, you know, uh, uh, or a sell side analyst or, you know, a public company CEO, you know, uh, or a strategic pharmaceutical company. But for VC, we did a lot of activity on the platforms, but it was all remote. So I did not go this year. I did not have FOMO except for missing out on the biotech hangout with you and Brad, uh, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Well, we missed you too. And, and I have to say, um, we had a great time at this event that we put together. It was almost like an impromptu thing, like literally a couple weeks before JP Morgan put out a tweet saying, let's do a biotech hangout in real life. And the response was amazing. I mean, we had something like 900 RSVPs, um, you know, and then a number of us co-hosting at Brad and Michal and Don Bell, who are also here today, we're also co-hosts. Uh, and it was a great turnout. Saw so many friends. We got sponsors, so we had drinks and food. Uh, it was it was really wonderful. Um, and you know, I want to thank the sponsors again. I don't have all of them in front of me, but I'll do it at the end of the program. So, uh, Josh, I know you have to make your disclaimers, and then um, would love to hear from you and Brad. General takeaways, and then I'll I'll go to the deals and and some of that stuff after. Oh, and here's Bruce. Yeah, thanks. And thanks so much, Jess. So Evercore ISI disclosures for the companies that I cover can be found on the Biodeck Hangout homepage, and no comments that I make in this session could, should be construed as investment advice whatsoever. Even if I talk favorably about companies, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm talking favorably about the stock. So, um, I, you know, I, I have to say, you know, Daphne, at the, at the start of the year, I was feeling a little burned out from a very long year in 22. and was just kind of looking for some inspiration. And I found it, at, you know, last week in, in San Francisco, just meeting with some companies that both companies I know, companies that I, that I don't know, but wanted to know, having, having great conversations. I, I think we're, you know, we, we talked last week about how we're in this kind of cleanup phase of, of the sector and the industry. And, you know, the, the way I kind of think about where we are uh, as a field is that we spent you know, five years throwing a whole lot of spaghetti against the wall, you know, in a fairly frenetic and fairly undisciplined way. And unfortunately, a lot of that spaghetti didn't stick and is, has fallen off or is in the process of falling off. But what's, what remains is, is, you know, really starting to take shape. Um, you, you know, companies are, are starting to mature. They're starting to reach proof of concept. There's just much more improved understanding of of technologies, of drugs, of unmet medical need. So, you know, I, I came out of JP Morgan. I, you know, I think last last week I'd mentioned that I am, you know, pretty pretty um, bullish on the sector in in general for the year ahead, and, and even more so now. Yeah, I, I also felt like there was just something about seeing everybody in person, getting together. Um, you know, one of the things I want to talk about, uh, I'll ask you guys about, is what we'll call the Monday mystique. So every year, the industry seems to put a huge amount of import on the deals announced Monday of J.P. Morgan to somehow provide a barometer of the deal activity and sentiment for the new year. And last week, Mike Yee was on. He's, he's one of our co-hosts, and he was even saying that the timeline has been pushing earlier and that some hedge funds were shorting their M&A basket because there were no deals announced the week before J.P.M. And then this year, we had three deals announced on Monday, 
And they were all in the $1 billion range and represented sort of later stage bolts on types of deals. They also, I think, all had a CVR component indicating a disconnect in perceived value, which was bridged via the CVR. But interestingly, I was talking with the uh, M&A lead on the JP Morgan team who advised both Nimbus on their $4 billion deal with Takeda and Horizon on their $26 billion deal with Amgen. And he pointed out that if those two deals had just closed a little bit later, everyone would be talking about how bullish the M&A landscape is looking and so on. So I see Bruce is in the room. I don't know if he's going to come on, but he could you know, probably address the Takeda Nimbus deal. Um, so just curious what you guys think about this. You know, we'll just call it the Monday mystique. How important is it? Why, you know, why are we so focused on Monday of JP Morgan? I know for a fact, and actually, Brad, maybe I'll go to you. You were talking with um, Eric Tokat about the fact that they were kind of, there's, there's a lot of pressure to close those deals on Sunday. He was involved in the three deals that were announced. What do you guys think about this whole Monday of JP Morgan uh, pressure to, to announce lots of deals? Well, I, I think that two of the deals represent buyers who kind of want to like put, you know, step forward and become bigger players on the global stage. And if you're in part making an acquisition for that reason, you want to create tons of buzz, you know, like a, an Amgen or a Pfizer or somebody can, can do a deal and they don't really care what people think, but um, how many people have heard of Chiesi, um, the Italian company who bought Amaret and Ibsen, which, you know, everyone's heard of, but still is, you know, a smaller French company. I think what was interesting about both of those deals is those are two foreign buyers that are trying to become, you know, bigger global players rather than to be thought of as, you know, European regional specialists. And so I think if you're a company like that, you want the huge PR splash. And so announcing something the night before or the morning of JPM really does do something meaningfully for you because you become the talk of the conference. And now, you know, especially that Italian company, a lot more people have heard of them and know that they're, you know, trying to be a global player now. Yeah, that's a great point. By yeah. the way, Let's, I, let's talk about this Brad TV thing. Uh, Chris, maybe you can introduce it. it sure, like sure. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I think I have to say just as an, uh, somebody who was not there and just watching the news flow, uh, it was a pretty underwhelming news-driven JPM. And I think partly because people aren't uh, planning on that Monday big release time. But I, I have to say, I, you know, what I got more out of was listening. And I didn't listen to all 19, Brad, but I listened to a lot of them is just the interviews um, with, you know, top CEOs, uh, investors, right? Advisors like Eric Tokat. Uh, I mean, they were, and I have to say, Brad, you are very um, uniquely skilled at fitting in so much good content in a less than 10 minute, right, dialogue. And if anybody did not listen to them, it's really a simple way than sitting on an hour and a half podcast uh, watch all of Brad's right um, interviews, but Brad, this is the first time you've really done it to this degree. You, you you've gone to meetings. You've usually done a few, but this was like a whole conference in parallel. And would love to hear just the genesis of that and what your takeaways were from some of the more you know interesting uh, uh, interviews. Yeah, thanks a lot. I really appreciate that nice feedback. So if Internet statistics are to be believed. Between Twitter and LinkedIn, those received over 300,000 video views, which is totally like almost beyond my comprehension. <laughs> and, and yeah, I used to like, you know, especially before the pandemic, when I would travel places, I would just do that for fun and people would eat it up. And what it always showed me is that I think there's a huge unmet need for that type of content. You know, when biotech people, when biotech executives go on TV, for example, it has to be a very generalized discussion because for the main financial networks, it's a general audience and you can't really get too technical, I don't think. And also, you know, it's mostly the large pharma CEOs and just like mega news names that usually end up 
um, on those programs. And there's so many other interesting people um, in our industry, like, you know, Eric Tokat is the perfect example. Um, is one of my favorite interviews this week because I learned so much just talking with him about how the M&A process works and how he was hustling with like trying to juggle three board meetings and like none of the three knew that the other two were going on. You know, it's, there's so many people in our industry whose jobs are super interesting like that. And, um, and so anyway, um, I actually wasn't planning to come to JPM this year and I ended up getting thankfully roped into, um, this event that the country of Italy was putting on to kind of highlight their, companies. I was the moderator of that on Wednesday night. And it came through and kind of late in December. And so by virtue of that one night, when I did finally decide to come, I was like, you know, I'm not just going to do my thing where you just meet, you know, I meet with company after company after company, I'm just going to have fun and record a bunch of those interviews. And, you know, another thing I'll say is um, a lot of those, the genesis of them, is from all of the clubhouses and hangouts that we've done. One of my favorite interviews of those 20 was Christy Shaw, for example, the CEO of Kite, who's so amazing and articulate and smart um, in person. And, you know, we had her on um, in, in August for the first time, and I didn't know her. I just reached out, you know, to Kite one day because they were in the news and she came on Clubhouse and, you know, now we know each other and we're able to, to do the video like that. So, so anyway, I just, you know, I do those because I learn from them and, and it's clear from doing them in the past that um, there's an unmet need for that type of content that people really enjoy. So I'm going to make a, a real effort to do a lot of that this year. In fact, next week, I'm going to be at a, a small conference in Miami that's kind of a cell and gene therapy conference. So on Wednesday, um, watch, watch for, for more, but thanks. Yeah. I like received tons of good feedback. Like it's amazing how many people literally like came up to me in the street and were like, hi, I don't know you, but I've been seeing these videos and, you know, totally appreciate them and everything. And it just makes you feel so good that, um, you know, knowing that people are enjoying them and just to meet, you know, people I don't know who, who are enjoying it and learning from it, um, you know, is really, you know, really a great thing. So thanks to everybody who did that. Brad, what were your biggest takeaways? You mentioned like Eric Tokat scrambling to try to get the deals done on Sunday. Uh, you had Stefan Bonsell, you had Nubar, um, you had um, the, the CEO of CGen. You had, you had some really great guests. What were some like tidbits or takeaways that you um, sort of that stuck with you? Well, I mean, outside of the videos, my biggest takeaway from JPM this year is my, what my main investment theme for biotech has been for the last few years, and I think is really going to be important going forward, which is globalization. You know, the J, JPM number one, I wasn't there. I was, I was like three or four years old, but um, I'm guessing was not a very global event. And... That's been happening a lot lately. You know, everyone knows that um, I've been really focused on China and, you know, and Europe and other places. And after COVID, every single country and every single region around the world understands the importance of biotech and medicine and, and what it means to the future and what it means to have homegrown companies. You know, think of how, how important beyond tech was to Germany and Europe um, and, you know, being from there and being located there, like every nation around the world has gotten that message. Um, and you're starting to, to see that in the news, those, you know, those three deals that Eric worked on Sunday and Monday were all three foreign buyers. It's the Italian company, Chiesi, um, French Ipsen, and then AstraZeneca, which kind of doesn't count because it's such, you know, a big multinational. But um, I think that, you know, as an investor myself, five or six years ago, I didn't give any thought at all to globalization. And like, 
you know, lately in the news, you see like Korean companies buying Aveo and things like that to, to get a footprint in Boston. And I think that if you're not focused on what's going on globally, you're missing the most important change that's happening in our industry. And so that was a big theme um, of, of what I took away from all of that. <laughs> Yeah, it's a really interesting theme, and, and um, I, I noticed that you pointed that out. Um, Josh, you had mentioned another really interesting theme that was um, a lot of companies, was it 30 companies pre-announced uh, earnings this week? Uh, it's interesting, but it probably creates even more work for you guys. Yeah, I, well, I think it's it's pretty impressive that we have 30 companies to, to pre-announce earnings, right? Just a, a sign of how the industry is evolving and maturing. A lot of these are... Um, you know, single product companies, small mid cap companies that um, you know are are kind of in the the middle stages of their evolution, right? Like the, the first stage is going to be getting your drug through clinical testing and, and then approved, and then your your middle stage is is launching the drug. But at the end of the day, you know the the challenge that every one of these companies faces is the the variable patent cliff, and that that clock is ticking. And they have a, a finite number of years to figure out how to become sustainable organizations, if if that is possible. And if they can't do that, then then what happens? You know, and, um, part of the reason that these the the three deals this week are, are so important is that you know so some of these companies were were or at least a couple of them were were companies that you know, needed to figure out what were they going to be when they grew up and if they, they couldn't figure out how to become sustainable, diversified organizations, you don't have many alternatives. Um, you know, for me, this is an important theme for the industry because we do have yeah, a lot of companies that are going to be launching drugs that may be selling, you know, 150, $250 million in revenue peak. That's generally par for the course for new approved drugs. Like there's always a group of drugs that become the mega blockbuster drugs and those create all sorts of optionalities for the companies fortuitous enough to have them. There's always a group of group of drugs that, you know, just get almost no commercial traction whatsoever. And, you know, they just become almost money pits from, from start to finish. But then the big chunk are these like 150, $250 million products that, you know, barely support an organization. Right, the the SGNA and, and R and D efforts, and don't really leave any cash flows left over for for shareholders at all. And the, these are companies that you know need need to figure themselves out. So I I, I try to watch as many of these as, as possible because they're all biz, biz dev challenges, strategic challenges that that need to be sorted out. And kudos to Avail, right, for for deciding that the best strategy for them was was not to try to um, reinvent their, the initial success of Tivazantid, but, but to find an acquirer and, and to really return capital to, to investors. Yeah. Um, staying sort of on a broader level, and then we'll dig into a few specific companies. There was lots of gossip about the change in venue. It sort of started in the lead up. Um, and I have to admit, I was you know having a dialogue with Peter Kolchinsky about it both on Twitter and off. Um, and I, I just will say that I met with some of the senior people on the healthcare team at JPM, including Mike uh, Gato. And uh, the feedback I got was that the Miami rumor is, a, you know, is completely off base. Um, they did look a few years ago at different cities and came away with a firm commitment to, to San Francisco. Uh, in fact, I would say that the answer to the rumors um, and the idea that they might move is a hard no no way, drop the subject. Will everybody just shut up about this? Um, so that was, I mean, I, I don't think J that um, JP Morgan is moving to another city anytime soon. Some other interesting can, takeaways. Can, oh, sorry, go that, ahead. That, yeah. Yeah. Can I just jump in on that? Um, yeah. I just want to say one thing as someone who's lived in Miami and, and loves Miami, JPM in Miami would be terrible. Um, like Miami Beach is actually. Uh, kind of a circus and it's just not a gr other than the nice weather which is why I think everybody throws Miami out there it wouldn't be a great city for that and I have to say personally every time I go to San Francisco this year included 
I absolutely like re fall in love with it. Um, I, you know, it's, it's easy to knock it, but I think it actually just the, the location and all the hotels that are in proximity to union square and everything. Like, I think it actually does work, you know, really well. So I hope, I personally hope it does stay in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. I'm with, I'm with you I, yeah. as a city. It's, it's kind of hard to, to, to beat for you know the convenience of being able to have all those hotels in such a short, short area or small area. I, I would just change the time. So it's not always like raining cats and dogs when you're yeah, I, I tend to agree. I mean, I was going back and forth on it, um, especially, you know, the last few times I've been, it's been rainy. So um, it's 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 amazing when it's not raining. Uh, but uh, when it's raining, it's yeah, really let me make a, a lot of fun. I just want to make a case for um, and, and Bruce wasn't in the room when I said this up front. But, you know, his article really did inspire me to say as a venture investor, how critical is this meeting? And the reality of it is, is JP Morgan is a investment banking conference and there are many many throughout the year and what i would like to see is encourage private companies strategics use these other meetings to orchestrate right more of these meetings they don't necessarily have to wait or go to jpm to do all of that because once you take out the investment banking part the public company ceos like you daphne who are meeting with you know public company investors right um and you have some strategic, a lot of the other stuff is done at bio or other venues. But I think we can still make JPM less of a craziness if we just start leveraging some of these other meetings for, you know, kind of non-investment bank conference activities. Just my two cents. Well, that's a great point because, you know, the, there's all of these investor meetings throughout the year. I mean, I think we did like 13 or 15 um, last year. Um, and they all are the same. So basically that component of it, you know, there's a little bit more prominence um, to the JP Morgan, getting a speaking slot, getting it on the right day, all that kind of stuff. But what I think is a differentiator of JP Morgan is the idea of having both the investor conference and this big partnering element at the same time. For example, um, the JPM guys were saying that every pharma company was meeting with five to 600 biotechs um, last week. And the scope and efficiency Seems like it would be difficult um, to recreate elsewhere. Uh, they did also mention on the bullish side that investor one-on-one -on -one requests this year were at an all-time high. So I thought that was pretty uh, promising. And, and could I? I see yeah, Don. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just, just weigh in on the kind of the, the SME right private SME companies that um, you know, a lot of them congregated around the biotech showcase, which has grown extraordinarily uh, rapidly, say over the past I can't remember how long it's been going, ten years or so, and. Um, and what I like about the idea of, of change, I'm going to be in the not go to San Francisco camp um, and even maybe convention center camp, which is really heresy, is that I do think that there is value in serendipitous interactions that we have at meetings like this. And right now I feel like there are there are like sort of discrete orbits of people that circulate around one another and that there is less serendipity than maybe there could be if you had a place where people got squashed together more, you know, in an easier way than different hotel lobbies or, or different events where it feels very exclusive uh, versus inclusive. I saw, I wish I was looking for the tweet, but there was a young woman, African-American woman who said, look, I, I just found out about this like largest healthcare conference in the world, never even knew about it. And I get here and there's no one here that looks like me. And, and I wonder, you know, could it be more of a catalyst to, to, to draw more people in you know, to the industry, which is, you know, predominantly male still, it's much better than it was the first time I went 10 years ago, predominantly white, and predominantly, um, you know, focused on, um, I don't know, it feels a little insider baseball, right? It feels more exclusive than inclusive. And I'd love to see us to be able to change that culture somehow. Yeah, thank you. And by the way, I just will mention that was um, Don Bell, who's one of our co-hosts and has been a senior leader at pharma companies for years, including uh, most recently Novartis. So um, that's a great point. And actually, that was a really interesting uh, dialogue with that woman. I did reach out to her um, to put her in touch with a women's biotech CEO group, which, by, by the way, has over 100 uh, members right now. And uh, there's, you know, I, I would say a few years ago, there was that article about there's more Michaels presenting than um, than women at JP Morgan. I do feel like there's more women CEOs sort of uh, presenting at 
JP Morgan other conferences and just in general. Um, Bruce, I see you're up here as a speaker. Did you want to say something? I yep. know you're um, with yeah, family. No, Go ahead. Thanks, and uh, sorry for not being able to be in earlier, but just building on some of the comments that Chris made uh, around JP Morgan, you know, we as a firm haven't gone in a handful of years, um, but that's uh, not to say JP Morgan isn't a fantastic event, especially for portfolio companies. And so all of our portfolio companies essentially went, I've heard back from many of them about, you know, the energy that was out there, the farm meetings, the investor meetings, and it sounded like it was really a super positive um, overall event. It just, you know, as a venture firm, as, as Chris alluded to, it just doesn't add the kind of value that the, uh, that the cost and time and sort of frictional loss of running around a city, um, you know, contribute to. I did want to comment on two things that you said earlier around the three M&A events that happened to kick off the week and the excitement around those. There was uh, sort of two things that I thought were particularly interesting about that. First, that Centerview did all three of them and announced them on Twitter. You know, Eric, within minutes, had already posted, you know, if you add, you know, Phil and the, and the JP Morgan team with Nimbus and Horizon, you know, those two firms seem to be dominating the M&A landscape in biotech. Um, but getting out on Twitter, as Eric did, is a pretty unusual and I think new way to communicate um, their involvement in deals. So I thought that was interesting. And then the second thing I thought was interesting was at least two and maybe three were all purchased essentially near their all-time highs, um, which were hit back in February of 21. And so you have companies that have been beaten down being purchased for their all-time highs. I'm not sure we're going to continue to see that, um, you know, but that highlights that perhaps that was a breaking point for those boards was, hey, if we can get purchased for something near our all-time high, that would be uh, something we'd do. I'm not sure that that boardroom dialogue is going to continue for all the M&A of 2023, but it was an interesting thing to note as we uh, as we kick off the year. Can I uh, react to one other thing and or just add on to something you said, Bruce? I think the most interesting of the three deals was actually the Astra Syncor deal. And the thing that I found interesting about it, so this is an aldosterone synthase inhibitor um, that's used to lower blood pressure for people who have treatment-resistant hypertension. And in November, they announced the result of a big phase two trial, and Wall Street hated it. Um, they missed their primary endpoint on an intent-to-treat basis. And, you know, they made a, an argument that they they think it worked really well in a subgroup and there was, you know, a small subgroup that kind of killed the study. And maybe it's a sign that we've gotten so negative um, lately that, you know, a sophisticated big pharmaceutical company really saw the value there that um, in this really negative year that we had last year, Wall Street wasn't giving companies like that the benefit of the doubt when, when you saw news like that. So of the three, I thought it was really interesting for that reason that, you know, the, the sign of, I don't know if we're at biotech's bottom or when that's going to be or anything like that, but um, one thing for sure I, I think will be a sign of a bottom is when sophisticated large pharmaceutical companies start to see value um, and start snatching things up that um, Wall Street has forgotten about or, or, you know, really diminished. And I think this deal is an example like that. So if we see a lot more of these types of things, I think it'd be a really positive sign for the sector. That's, yeah. that's a, a really great point. Um, we have Michal Preminger, who's uh, at J&J, &J, uh, one of our co-hosts. She's just come up. Michal, did you want to say something? Yeah. Maybe a few things. Thanks, uh, Daphne, and, and thanks, everyone. Um, so um, a quick one in defense of, of JPM and uh, maybe calling everyone to come. Uh, as someone who represented a, an Israeli company early stage and then my own little company that I was raising funds for and then a project spinning out of Harvard and, and now at J&J, I think that the fact that everyone is there is critically important. So Don, I, I take your point on inclusivity, but 
for companies who come from all over the world to have all of the stakeholders and the players in the ecosystem and decision makers in one place um, is actually critically important. And uh, so I, I just want to advocate for this one venue. And yes, there is bio, but I think bio is, is, is different and it doesn't include some of those uh, investment bankers and, and people who, um, who are connections that a, a young company, for example, can start making uh, early on in, in its journey and then leverage later. Um, I would also say that as a woman, uh, I was running around like crazy uh, between, uh, you know, breakfasts and dinners and get-togethers uh, dedicated for women, and uh, and I felt a little bad for the men. Um, it doesn't mean that you know our work is done and we're we're fully inclusive, but I think that uh, we have come a long way. And I just urge anyone in the audience who needs to be connected to the right event uh, in ne next year to just contact me and make sure that this happens. And finally, just about the sentiment and where deals will be coming from, there were hundreds of meetings that uh, every um, one of the larger pharma companies uh, did. And I think that there was a demonstration of, of resilience and passion and maturity that came from from uh, companies um, young and less young that uh, is impressive and I, I think eventually will translate. So I, 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 I want to express some optimism and, and with you, Brett, I, I think Syncor, you, you know, you actually, I remember the, the clubhouse uh, session in which this was discussed and it's nice to see this translate. I think that uh, the, the exposure that many companies got uh, beyond the hard data that you know you see or, or hear or read about, but also meeting the teams. Um, there was so much of it going on in, in this meeting. And, uh, and again, uh, it makes me optimistic about the rest of the, of the year. Thank you, Michal. So Josh, you wanted to dive into some specific company updates. We, we, I mean, definitely should talk about day one. Uh, uh, that is a company that's run by one of our colleagues, Sam Blackman, and they announced promising, reassuring data. Uh, and there was a few others that you wanted to talk about, Josh. Yeah, there, there, there are a number of data updates uh, of interest. Um, day one provided the full phase two data update for tovarafenib, um, a pan-B-RAF inhibitor for pediatric low-grade glioma, and I think one was so remarkable about this data update was how similar and nearly identical it was to the interim update they gave uh, last year that really put them on the map. Um, we've done a lot of work on the MAP kinase pathway, looking at the various nodes, and I think the the RAF path, the RAF node in particular, is is one that's starting to see a fair amount of innovation. The first wave of BRAF inhibitors um, were were rather confined to like the the V six hundred. Um, uh, mutations just based on some of the um, some of the nuances of how those drugs were uh, were targeting BRAF, but now there's a collection of more of pan BRAF variants, and they're starting to unlock some pretty important unmet medical needs. And, and day one is, uh, is is one that's in the lead, and there, there are a few other companies that are um, that are advancing. And, and in a way that, that's, I think, a little bit more orderly than we've seen in the past. Like, like in the past, we've seen a whole lot of companies go after the exact same indication once they have, you know, validated mechanism. But it seems like day one is, is alone in the, and in the lead in the pediatric low-grade uh, glioma data. It's really, really transformational data for those patients. So it's very exciting for, um, for them and, and for the community. A uh, couple of interesting updates that, that I came across as well. Um, uh, IgM Biosciences uh, is moving their IgM uh, bispecific, their uh, CD20 by CD3 uh, in, in Votamab. That's, that's looked um, pretty good in, uh, in lymphoma. They're, they're now taking it forward for, uh, for lupus, kind of on the, on the heels of a, a similar data set that uh, inspired Cavaletta. Uh, we've spoken about in, in the past to move their CD19 CAR T uh, forward for autoimmunity for lupus in particular. There was um, 
specifically referencing uh, an academic study, I believe out of Germany, a small group of patients treated with uh, CD19 CAR-T with uh, severe refractory lupus and, and whose disease like nearly melted away very, very quickly after that therapy. Um, small handful, handful of patients, so it's going to need to be validated, but I think we're, we're starting to see bispecifics and CAR-Ts collide in the oncology setting, and you know, now we might see um, both move into uh, the, the autoimmune space. So that was an interesting update from, from IGM that they're, they're moving quickly. And, and they, they actually do seem to have a fairly differentiated bispecific platform with their, their IGM constructs that, that seem to be very efficacious, um, but they don't necessarily have the same cytokine release syndrome that you're seeing with the, um, with the IgG bispecifics. Uh, BioAtla updated their uh, Axel cab. It's, it's kind of like a, an NADC, but with some some nuances that, that are designed to be very tumor selective. The, the data was decent. It wasn't quite as good as their previous interim, and that the stock had sold off uh, a, a fair amount on the update. I think one of the things that was concerning to investors was that the combo with uh, PD-1 antibody and Axel-positive non-small cell lung cancer. Previously, they had um, one CR out of four patients treated, but that's now one CR out of 10 patients treated. What's, uh, what's interesting, though, is that some of those patients were very rapid progressors, and they came off drug quickly. And I'd asked um, BioAtla if they had measured circulating tumor DNA to see if, if you know, perhaps some of those patients were pseudo-progressors. And they had not, and so, so it's not exactly clear if they were true progressors or pseudo-progressors. But the uh, experience with Immunocore's ChemTrack is so notable. I think we've, we've flagged this before uh, on, on our Fridays that ChemTrack is a um, TCR engager for treatment of uveal melanoma that clobbered basically a PD-1 antibody in a head-to-head -head study, clobbered it on survival, really dramatic, and, and did so without you know, much of a, of a resist response signal, without much of a PFS signal. And it, and it turned out after a lot of diligence and analysis, Immunocore essentially showed that they were getting like really, really high rates of tumor pseudoprogression. And one of the best ways to, to assess that is to look at the circulating tumor DNA. Right? Sometimes when tumors are progressing very quickly on therapy, it, it means because the, uh, the, the images suggest the tumor is progressing, but really what it is is a tumor getting infiltrated with a lot of T cells and starting to swell, look like it's getting bigger, but it's actually the immune system doing its job against that, that tumor. And so personally, I've become very attuned to this dynamic and if a drug does not have a very high response rate, you can still look for circulating tumor DNA reductions to, to get a sense maybe maybe something similar is happening. Is it happening with the BioAtla product? Who knows? It would be something to to keep an eye on. Um, another one other interesting hey, update. Hey, yeah. hey Josh, yeah, can I, I jump in and just comment please, on please. that specifically? Because I think it's another important, one of my important takeaways from the meeting and just the learning about our business in general one criticism I have of biotech the last four or five years, and it's really investors who are most guilty of this, is that people give up on things way too soon. Like how many medical meetings, especially on, in oncology, have we ha had where dozens of companies present first in human data that's like, you know, dose escalating where you're not even technically looking for responses and then when there's no responses, those companies and those programs are just left for dead. And um, I, one of the videos I did uh, this week was with Bahija Jalal from Immunocore. And she was like, you know, I asked her about exactly this. I, I actually gave you a shout out, too, because you were the one that really raised um, my attention on this, specifically with the Uni uh, Immunocore. And she's like, yep, yeah, the PFS data didn't look that great. But, you know, I had doctors telling me that this person wouldn't be alive um, under any other circumstance. So, like, what else can you, you know, like, you've got to have perseverance. And I have to admit, one thing I've been really negative on the last couple of years that I think has been disappointing is um, allogeneic cell therapy. And I said that to Ari Beldegrun. And, I, you know, I said, am I wrong? And he's like, look. 
we just had a company meeting and we had patients speak at it who said they wouldn't be who I know wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for, you know, our, our allogeneic cell, you know, cell therapy treatments. And I thought of that with like another video that I did um, with Rachel Horowitz of Caribou, who, you know, she's at dose level one in her cell therapy. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to, you know, ultimately, you know, improve at higher doses or whatever. But, you know, she's she so far she has released six patients worth of data and they all at dose level one, they all initially had CRs that ultimately relapsed. And everybody's moving on saying this isn't going to work, but she's at dose level one. <laughs> um, and so I, I think that that is some, something that all of us, whether we're investors or, or you, know, at re- you know, people at companies or whatever, I think we need to be more patient um, when it comes to science and, and clinical data. I feel like you know, the term you used is right on. A lot of spaghetti has, get, has been thrown against the wall. But I think we've passed judgment on it like immediately when it hits the wall. And some things like this, um, you know, take more time than that. And so I think that that's something that all of us in our industry can can improve on is not giving up on things so quickly. It's, you know, biology is not that easy. To, yeah, and Brad, to me, that's just opportunity. And I like I, I try to keep an eye on, on as many of these companies that investors have given up on because the ones that they've prematurely given up on but still have, um, you know, a, a promising asset often make for the the most astounding risk rewards. So, but uh, I'm with you. I mean, there there is a lot of giving up early, but but that also does create opportunity. Um, one other quick thing I want I want to flag because it's like one of my favorite themes, which is endo. Um, how interesting a space is it is for innovation. There's obviously been tremendous amount of focus on obesity, and a lot of the drugs for obesity are injectable drugs. And uh, there's a company, Crenetics, whose who's kind of play here is to try to bring good, strong, new medicinal chemistry into endocrinology where you know, it really hasn't. Um, this hasn't really been, been done before, even though it's, it's fairly obvious to try. So they announced that they are working, at least in the, in the early stages, on an oral obesity drug. They haven't disclosed the target. You can probably guess based on some of the leading injectable drugs what, what they might be contemplating. So it'll be an interesting one to, um, to keep an eye on and, and whether an oral obesity drug can compete effectively with, um, with the injectables. The one, the one area that you know, we'll kind of have to keep an eye on there are a couple of other um, oral obesity drugs advancing and kind of targeting the similar GLP-1 related receptors is because some of these drugs can cause nausea and vomiting, it's actually preferable to have a, a, a subcurrent parenteral route. So if patients do have that problem, they're, they're not going to, um, you know, wind up vomiting back up their, their pedal. I, I guess, to some extent, the fact that they are getting nauseous and, and vomiting would, would suggest that enough of the drug has been absorbed already. So, if, you know, it, it hopefully wouldn't undermine that uh, that treatment option. But uh, one of one of many, many, many programs that Crenetics is uh, is working on in the, in the endo space. What, what's neat about endocrinology is that you know the the endpoints that you're looking at in phase one are often the exact same biomarker endpoints that that are the primary endpoints in phase three. The pathways in endocrinology have been mapped out for like decades and decades and decades. So you have a very keen and acute sense of which receptors to target, how to target them. Um, and oftentimes what's also really needed endocrinology, and this is something Crenetics has been doing, is that you can challenge patients with pseudo-disease states. So, you know, for diseases of excess ACTH, you can actually give a healthy volunteer a little bolus of ACTH and then you know, it's it's fairly benign for a, a one-time administration, and then you can actually mm-hmm. test a drug to make sure in those healthy volunteers, if it's mitigating the effect of that ACTH, they're going to do the same with PTH. They're doing mm-hmm. the same in the congenital hyperinsulinemia setting, probably do the same in perhaps the TSH setting as well. And so it's a really really unique um, therapeutic category where you get to to learn a, an exceptional amount in phase one that. that mm-hmm. you know, really can't do in other settings. 
Yeah, it's it's fascinating. We, by the way, I wanted to mention this is what's great about Twitter. Uh, is uh, Eric Tokat and I were just DMing, and he's just joined the room. So, you, somebody talks about you on Twitter, you can find out about it and join. So, um, welcome, Eric, and and we'll ask you to um, to comment in a moment. Um, and I also want to go to Chris to talk about the um, some new things from FDA, including the. Um, announcement that there was going to be a, no longer a requirement for animal testing. I, I saw it. I didn't have a chance to dig deep into that uh, more and also more clinical holds. Uh, maybe, Chris, yeah. could you cover that briefly and then we'll go to Eric? Yeah, that sounds good. So, yeah, look, I think uh, Daphne's referring to there was a, a kind of article about how uh, there's been initiatives to say, can we eliminate animal testing? And uh, there, this was basically an article in Science that outlined this proposal, and it was partly somewhat driven by animal rights and the idea that we have these, you know, organoid screens and we have these other, <clears throat> you know, in silico ways of evaluating. And there's nothing that is going to represent a sea change. I think that, uh, like a lot of things, um, it's easy to criticize what's wrong with current animal testing. It's not ideal, right? You don't have great translational models. There's less and less predictive power that people find in, you know, preclinical animal studies. But also we have untested other ways of trying to screen. And I think that the industry, even if they're not required uh, to do certain things, and I think that's going to, uh, you know, not be a quick thing. I think that's going to be a slow, uh, you know, going trend we, we might see. But, you know, we still are more comfortable with the devil, you know, which is, you know, characterizing our drugs through animal models and disease models that have been tested, you know, toxicology screens, that's still like, nobody loves doing this, but it is an important step to screen out. And what ultimately might result in is taking more risk in clinical development and knowing less about your compound when you go into it. And so I think this is a little bit of a push from, you know, uh, kind of those who want to protect animal rights. I think there are good ethical boundaries around what you can and cannot do with animal testing. And I think uh, some territories, it's more stringent. So it's just one of those themes. But just related to the broader theme uh, is that um, uh, the FDA uh, has, you know, started to show signs of some conservatism uh, around, you know, revisiting accelerated approval. Um, you're seeing more and more clinical holds. So the Wall Street Journal reported on this. Uh, and we're seeing a, a clear uptick in the number of clinical holds, which is being chalked up to new technologies that are less tested, you know, but the industry's moving towards some of these newer technologies. Um, and Project Optimist is something where, you know, it's requiring cancer drugs to really uh, find the maximum, right, you know, uh, uh, effective dose. And so this is gonna add more complexity and costs uh, for companies. Uh, and it's already impacted some programs where they were required to look at, at higher doses. And I just want to highlight that this was summarized in uh, an article written by uh, an author of a book that just came out this week. I think, Brad, you had uh, uh, posted this uh, as a, getting an early copy. But Nathan Vardy, who wrote you know, what sounds like a really compelling book around um, the BTK inhibitors and uh, Wayne Rothbaum, who started CERTA, uh, uh, and he partnered with Perceptive Advisors, so I know a little bit more about the history around that and his relationship with Joe Edelman. But he wrote an article that was very interesting about uh, is this, uh, you know, um, is the heyday of biotech, I forget the exact title of it, uh, is it over? Uh, and he posted that in stat. And the things he cited about why we should be concerned about the next decade, and I'm an optimist, right? I'm not saying the sky's falling. But he cited the increased number of FDA clinical holds in that article. Uh, he referenced Project Optimus, you know, really uh, higher requirements. He, he referenced the scrutiny around accelerated approval. And then he also mentioned things like the IRA, uh, which if we have time, Daphne, I can share my experience with the endpoints panel that I had to be a late replacement for Peter Kolchinsky <laughs> going against four <laughs> um, policy advocates for the price, you know, uh, negotiation uh, and controls that will be set in. But um, anyway, so I, I think it, yeah. it is a theme that we want to better understand. But let, why don't we go to Eric and he can talk about some of the deals. Yeah, cool. You know, I, I think that's a, it's really uh, interesting. And Nathan had um, expressed an interest in joining us for a biotech hangout 
maybe next uh, Friday uh, he will join us. So we'll, we'll update. But uh, he's definitely written a book that I think is worthwhile reading, and we'll, we'll have him on here soon. Um, so Eric Tokat, um, we've we've had Eric on here before. Eric, we talked about the three deals that you announced on Monday. Uh, I'm also curious what your general takeaways were around the conference um, partnering. And maybe you can also touch on royalty deals. I feel like there's this emergence of royalty financing deals as a powerhouse over the last year. So on Monday, we heard about Ionis um, and Royalty Pharma, and it was like pretty decent deal. You know, it was something like um, it was 625, you know, up 500 million upfront and another 625 million in milestones. We're seeing more and more of those. Uh, love to hear your thoughts on deals in general and also royalty deals and the week. Okay, thank you, definitely, and thanks for having me. And and I think I guess I also want to thank Brad for having me on on one of his interviews. So um, I did enjoy enjoy that a lot. Uh, so Albeda was super early uh, in the morning, um, and um, but it was great. Um, so uh, the deals, I think it's it's really a, a continuation of the theme that I mentioned earlier uh, here and and in other uh, venues that. Uh, Commercial to late stage deals are, are very attractive uh, because you know um, the big pharma and the broader sort of acquirer landscape, if you will, are in sort of a uh, by and large in in great need of, of of cash flows, revenues, growth, what have you, in the latter part of the decade. And and I think um, very early stage deals are not providing that opportunity for them to fill in those gaps. And I think we're seeing more and more interest towards later stage assets. And I think these three deals were, uh, were a good example of that. I mean, um, the, uh, if, if I were to specifically go to one by one, you know, the first, the KZ one is a very classic, uh, you know, European specialty pharma uh, looking to add sort of revenues and cash flows um, through a, a collection of rare disease assets. So, so sort of a completely de-risked, sort of um, uh, easy-to-do deal, if you will. The Ipsen Albrea one uh, is, has very similar theme, except a uh, little more growth uh, that Ipsen wanted, uh, adding the rare disease or, or continue to block up the rare disease side of their business. And Albrea was an attractive target because it had a product in the market uh, on one indication, second indication, uh, data is great. It'll be adding to, to the label and then a large uh, indication that's still on the come. So I think that was sort of the theme there. And then the AZ Syncor was also obviously in some level interesting uh, because AZ um, has been essentially looking at that asset for a while. Um, uh, and, and obviously on the resistant hypertension, the, the data was great, but on the next trial on upper hypertension, uh, you know, market didn't love the, the data and stock essentially traded all the way down to cash, but those discussions continued with, with AZ and eventually AZ got comfortable with it, with what they want to do with it, uh, which we understand it by and large, a, a combination uh, with the SGL2s and what have you. And, and so it sort of served that purpose, if you will, for them. And, and it was sort of attractive from, from their perspective and it was acceptable from, from Syncor shareholders board perspective. And, and sort of those, de these, those three deals, I think, um, uh, sort of really made the conference. So, so the conference broadly, in my mind, was, was 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 actually quite positive. You know, we always like to see more deals in in this week of the year, but but the the discussions with the pharma's and the feedback I got from a lot of my biotech uh, clients have been very positive. Uh, you know, my knowledge of pharma's I think is is one that they 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 will do deals. I mean, we're going to see quite a few deals this year. Uh, uh, there's a strong uh, backlog. Um, and, and I think that's driven by the need. I think Brad asked me this question about the theme of the deals. Are we going to see earlier stage deals as well? I think the answer is yes, we will. I think it's going to be a balance. So I think we're going to continue to see sort of a later stage to commercial deals, but we will also see 
you know, the phase ones and phase twos to fill in some scientific gaps, as I would uh, call them. Um, uh, and uh, I think we're also seeing a theme moving from exclusively focused on oncology that we've seen in the past several years into more, uh, you know, uh, more diversified therapeutic categories, if you will, a la CNS, you know, cardiovascular, broader autoimmune diseases. I mean, INI, I think we're seeing a resurgence of, um, you know, broader immunology and inflammation, autoimmune type uh, diseases. I think some good, good signs happening there as we've seen on some uh, recent trials, I think we're going to see a lot of pharma interest, again, continuing to shift to uh, to that. Obviously, recently we saw Takeda uh, Nimbus deal is a good sort of testimony to that. I think uh, we're going to, I think I expect to see uh, more deals on, on that sort of uh, genre as well uh, versus historically it's really been deal flow has been split between oncology and and rare disease so so i feel i feel again i i remain optimistic about the uh, the year um and um and again i think uh we're gonna see that lastly on your question of royalty financing i think uh royalty financings i think are serving a very a good uh um, purpose uh, in a world where uh, the capital markets broadly are not open or favorable. I mean, when there is no equity or debt for the biotechs, I think um, uh, royalty uh, uh, financing have uh, come to the rescue, if you will, and, and I think they're doing a good job with it. I think uh, it's also becoming competitive uh, between some of the different royalty players. Obviously, initially, it was all royalty pharma, but now we have others entering to the picture, and so it's obviously the comp with the competition. Uh, biotechs will get more favorable terms as well. So, so we are also seeing that as a as a major tool uh, for financing um, in the absence of of, of 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 capital markets. So let me let me pause there. If there are questions, I'll obviously I'll, I'll take them. Guys, any questions? Well, maybe uh, maybe a quick one, and, and Eric, congrats on an incredible start to the to the year for you guys. Um, if you had a if you had a venture, guess you know, twenty twenty two was a record year for M and A in terms of deal number, not a record year for M and A in terms of dollar number, right? Because it was like a lot of like smaller deals and transactions. At the uh, at the end of twenty three, how do you think it's going to compare to twenty two in terms of the numbers? <laughs> Yeah, Josh, that's that's not an easy question in terms of comparison. I I will see. I I will say we will have. Uh, I think we'll have a better year in both in both uh, criteria. I think we'll have a, a higher volume in terms of dollars because we may see, you know, several sort of mid to larger size deals. Um, uh, we might also see more smaller deals. So, I'm 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 optimistic about 2023 being a a more robust year than 2022. I don't know if it will reach the 2021 or 2020 levels because those years were obviously very strong in terms of particularly a number of deals greater than a billion dollars, which I focus a lot on uh, because those were record years in terms of number of deals. Again at greater than a billion dollars. I don't know if it'll reach those years, but we I do believe we'll, we'll have a stronger year than 2022. Excellent, thank you. Great, well, we're pretty close to time, so I'll just invite my colleagues to make any closing remarks. Um, and I do wanna just say it was terrific to see everyone uh, really enjoyed uh, the, the that Hangout in Real Life event that we had. And, and I'll just mention um, a thank you to our sponsors uh, but I'll just see first if anybody else wants to comment. I'll just say, Daphne, I'm glad you and Brad and others uh, posted pictures from the party because if I had one uh, bit of FOMO, it was not being able to be there. But uh, it looked like it was a lot of fun. And uh, as Bruce said, we, we did a lot remotely, um, my team, and we met with a lot of companies through the partnering platforms and all that. So e e you can have a good JP Morgan even if you're not in San Francisco. But this was a lot of fun to uh, to talk about it on this uh you know, post JPM uh, biotech hangout. 
Great. Well, um, I will thank the sponsors of the event. Um, it was um, Pacific Western Bank, FTI Consulting, Coulter Partners, Emerald BioVentures, Miss Pro Biotech, MassBio, and PureTech. Um, so thanks to all of you. Thanks also for our guests that joined us impromptu, uh, Bruce Booth, Michal Preminger, Don Bell, and Eric Tokat. Uh, you know, Don, Michal, and Bruce are regular co-hosts, but every once in a while they join us uh, on an impromptu basis. And it's been uh, such a pleasure having Brad and Chris on here, my colleagues on the two-year anniversary of Biotech Clubhouse slash Hangout. So thank you so much for joining today. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Have a great week. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. We're going to close out the room. <laughs>